Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Don Thornton with me here tonight. Don, I really appreciate your time, and I'm going to send everybody to your website, Don, because you have an offer for them where you can talk and learn a little bit more about legally reducing your taxes by as much as 90% or more, and we're going to talk about some of those options here tonight. But head over to Financial Freedom for You, and that's the number four and the letter U, dot now dot site. And I'm going to have that link in the show, show notes. So uh, swipe over on your podcasting app and find that as a clickable link. So Don, I really appreciate your time here tonight. Thank you for having me. So let's, let's start things off by asking you like, well, based on some of the information I've seen regarding you, you've been in real estate investing for quite some time. Yes, this is my 20th year. Actually, December will be my 21st year, and I spent most of that time specializing in short sales. And oh, that's really? Stick is Don the short sale guy. That's how I branded myself all these years. And because uh, that's really all I want to do is short sales. Sure. How did you find your way into that niche? I know there's not a ton of people out there that do sh- focus on short sales. Well, you got to remember, I, I started this back in 2002. So back then, nobody was doing them, uh, which was to my advantage. But I just felt like I may mean, come from a finance background and I just felt like the concept that you could take an asset that is almost like a liability because an upside down house with no equity, negative equity. No, traditionally, wholesalers don't want it. Most people don't want that. And so you could literally just say, hey, I'll take if you, you know, if you're in foreclosure, I go knock on your door back in that back in those days. And, I, and they, I'd say I want to buy your house and say, ah. Oh, no, you don't want it. I said, why wouldn't I want it? He said, well, because we owe more than what it's worth. I said, I don't care. I'll take it. And they would literally would drive down to the local UPS store and they would sign a deed over to me right then. And then mm-hmm. it was simpler to do it back then. You can't do that now. But at the time, it was just like, I mean, as a newbie, I picked up 36 houses in 10 weeks, I think it was. And uh, But the idea that I could take this house that nobody wants that has no value, and just by negotiating, I can create a twenty to fifty to eighty thousand dollar profit. That was like, well, no risk either. So I thought to myself, you know what, I'm in. That's what I want to do, and I just never stopped. Well, you said it was easier back then, but are you still doing that today? Oh yes, it's just my my exit strategies are different now than they are. Oh now. sure, what, how has it changed? Well, back then it was strictly buy it rehab it and then you know put it back on the market i don't do that anymore i stopped rehabbing about four years ago i just found that i just did a b testing and realized that actually i was netting more by not rehabbing and not taking and i was i had, I had so many more so many so much more cost when it comes to came to the rehabbing than it was with uh just you know, I started off by doing just lipstick on a pig, just sweep it up, make it look a little better and just throw it out there. And then even I, even then I said, you know what, there's got to be a better, better way to do this. And so I was able to work out a way to make, you know, nice money, thirteen, eighteen thousand dollars $18,000 per sale and never take title to it. It was almost like the concept is the same of wholesaling, 
but it's different because it's a short sale and it has to, mm. the lender has to approve it. So we really had to uh, put our thinking caps on and figure out how to do it. But we came up with it and we're in our fifth year of doing that. And it works wonderful, wonderfully. Yeah. You know, we kind of ended up in the same results. I used, we used to do a lot of flipping as well. And, mm-hmm. and uh, frankly, we, we came to the same conclusion. So we do something what we call wholetailing to a, mm-hmm. to a certain extent now where we, when we do get a property under contract, it's, mm-hmm. we try to do as little as possible, get it cleaned up and then just get it churned as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Because you're right. You can, you can, when you take into account all of the rehab and the time and the cost mm-hmm. of money and everything associated with it, sometimes you're better off just churn and burn. You know, I think that people get, they fall in love with the, with the flip this house and different programs that are on, on TV and they're so focused on, on oh, I want to do this and that, and all oh, this look great, and, and it's all about what's in your month in your pocket if the, when the deal's over with. That's right. all that all that matters. Mm-hmm. The house is just the instrument for you to make money. And so if you can if you can make a nice money, and you can keep moving and moving and moving, if you have if you have the, the pipeline, then it's, it's the only way to do it, in my opinion. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think we can thank HGTV and a few of those other channels to. Thanks to that, you know, there's like this romanticism around flipping houses, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's never, and I can guarantee you there's not a lot of people who can pull it off in 30 minutes or la- less. Yeah. So, so this, you know, I'm going to, I could, I could, we could probably spend an entire episode talking about your negotiations and that process associated with banks and getting them convinced uh, regarding the short sale process. I mean, the, there's got to be a lot of skill associated yes. with that. You have experience. I mean, you do something this long, you you get good at it or you you move to something else. Did you find that it's easier to talk to the smaller banks than than larger ones? No, larger, to that? Yeah. larger ones every time, huh? Every time. The smaller ones they get they get they get more into the nitty-gritty. You as long as you can give the bank the, the large banks negotiators what they want in a format that they prefer. They will give you, and you, you start developing a relationship with these people. They, they, they'll, a level of trust will develop, develops, and they will almost pretty much just rubber stamp it. And that's what we've been able to accomplish. Well, I, you know, I've, I've learned too, because I actually have a banking background as well. And, and I've learned too, is that once you start to learn their process and what they're looking for, and you start to tailor your packets associated with it. I'm, I'm sure you probably get noticed more than than once when you kind of figure out their process. And, and it's typically all about the numbers is when it comes to them. And you want to give more the, predictable. Yes. And you just you don't take advantage of their trust either. So you don't get greedy, which is a big right. thing. The biggest mistake right. people make in short sales, they think it's easy and they go for too much and they get slapped. And they right. lose all credibility with that, with that negotiator, which we, we do not, that is gold for us. And we will make sure that we do not ever come off as greedy or trying to pull a fast one. And that, that will burn your bridges as fast as you can do that. Right. Well, so one thing leads to another and, and you're, we're talking here tonight. I want to make sure we have enough time for this. So you're talking about legally reducing your taxes in your process. What what do you focus on in order to accomplish this? Well, you know, in, I'm a short sale flipper in the sense that, well, because when I stopped taking houses and rehabbing them and throw, put them out for sale again, I just started basically, like you said, wholetailing in a sense and a short with a short sale at, uh, emphasis on it. You know, all my income was ordinary income, 
ordinary mm -hmm. active income. And when you get above $165,000 a year, then you're taxed between 32 to 37%, which is a big chunk of your money. And mm -hmm. so that was always the, the challenge for me was how in the world can I do this without, you know, paying so much in taxes. And you can, you can play the, the write-off game as much as you want, but nevertheless, you're still, I mean, you're playing Russian roulette with the IRS that way anyway. Uh, but there had to be a mechanism out there. I knew there had to be something out there where, you know, you could not have to pay so much in taxes and, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And I was able to find a source to where we were able to find out that, okay, this, there is a, a trust out there. It's called a non-grantor, irrevocable, complex, discretionary, spendthrift trust. And there is an IRS tax code that is, has to do specifically with that kind of trust. And what you can do is, you know, what's, this is what anybody would do to real estate investing genre is you, the trust is created, you're made the trustee, okay? You establish your bank account, and then you sell your personal and your business assets to the trust, okay? That meant any properties that I owned, I sell them to the trust. My own personal residence, my own vehicles, any assets sold to the trust, now, the thing is, you don't sell it at fair market value. You sell it at the price you acquired the asset at, okay? So, mm -hmm. for example, my wife and I got married in 99, and then we moved to Orlando, and we, we bought a house. It was $155,000 in 2001. No, 2000, I think it was. So, of course, it's not worth that now. But when we sold it, that was the price. And you may be asking, well, why would you do that? Because you don't want to create a, a capital gains event when you sell the asset to the trust. Because the trust is irrevocable, you can't transfer assets back and forth. It has to be sold. But you want to do it in a way to where you're not going to pay taxes on the transaction. So all of these assets, my personal, my business, everything is sold into the trust. So now I... and. You know, the, the spendthrift provision of this trust is the very last one of the name I just gave you. That gives you 100% lawsuit-proof asset protection. That doesn't mean that you can't prevent someone from suing you. What it does mean is that when it gets in front of a judge, the judge is going to say, you can't sue this trust. It's, it has a spendthrift provision. It's untouchable. Only way it's been penetrated in hundreds of years is if, the, is if somebody can prove there was fraud involved. And as long as you're, you know, minding your P's and Q's, no one's going to get you. They can't get any overturn orders. They can't get any seizures. They can't come in and uh, they can't get you personally. They can't get you as trustee. And the trust is impenetrable. So now your assets are locked down 100%. But that's that's the asset protection part. And that's exciting. I can talk an hour about that. But I want to tell you about the tax stuff. The tax stuff's fun. Okay. So what you do is you take you, you form an LLC and you have the um, trust becomes a 90% limited partner in the LLC. So I have 10%, but I'm the managing partner. The trust has a has a 90% limited partnership in the trust. So I'm gonna instead of take instead of running my business through my S Corp like I did for 19 years, now I've got a you know, I've got my LLC, but the only issue is that the LLC does not have any assets with which it can generate revenue. So what we're going to do 
is since all my assets, my business assets are in the trust, the trust is going to lease those assets to my LLC. So now everything's hunky-dory. I can go out and do my normal business, you know, calling up foreclosures, networking with people to get referrals for upside down properties. We do our business, we flip, we, you know, make our money. And so at the end of the year, let's say that, you know, my gross revenue was 1.2 million. Okay. I go through and do my write-offs, deductions, like you normally do. And let's say that um, that leaves me with a net, a pre-tax net income of $1 million. Now, normally, that's where I would be calculating what my tax burden would be for that year. And since I'm an ordinary income, that would be 32% or $320,000, right? So that's mm -hmm. a big chunk. So, but the difference is, is that there's two more expenses that we can, we can use to bring that LLC's tax burden down to almost nothing. And you're going to, this is going to be crazy. Remember when I told you that we lease the assets from the trust to the LLC? Now, the IRS will allow up to 70% of your, of your pre-tax net income to be used as a lease payment for those assets. So we're going to take 700000 of the $1 million net income, and that's going to be sent to the trust as a lease payment for those assets. Okay? So now we have reduced that pre-tax net income from $1 million down to 300000 Okay. Now there's one more trick left to go. Remember that the trust is a is a 90% limited partner in the LLC and needs to get paid for its equity position. So 90% of the $300,000 that's left over or $270,000 is going to be transferred over to the trust as a K1 distribution for that equity position. So now our our LLC was Million dollars, good job, you know, you you, know, you did a great job, and and oh, wait for Uncle Sam. Now it's like, well, you only made three thirty thousand dollars this year, all that work, and you made thirty thirty thousand dollars. That's where you're going to calculate your tax. Okay, hmm. so I think you can see that your LLC is not going to owe much of anything from the taxes. Okay, we're going to shift gears. We're going to go back over to the trust because you're probably thinking to yourself, well, the trust is going to have to pay taxes, right? No, I tell you why. Because of the, st the special nature of this trust and the fact that it is in accordance with IRS code 643, as trustee of this trust, I have full discretion. That's why it's called a discretionary trust, remember? Non grantor, irrevocable, complex, discretionary spendthrift trust. Okay, the discretionary part is very important because I have 100% uh, control and authority to take. Those two uh, passive income payments that came in, the lease payment and the K-1 distribution. Now, I can declare them to be an extraordinary dividend for the trust, which means that any taxes that would have been paid on that will be deferred in perpetuity. They will never be paid. Okay. And oh, by the way, just as a bonus, if I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a buy and hold guy, but if I was, let's say that I had a, a, a duplex that I hold for a couple of years, I said, you know what? I'm going to sell it. So I sell it. And then I would have, I would, I would be, I'd be paying capital gains tax on that, right? Or I would do a 1031 exchange, which is unwieldy and it costs money and it's not that great, but no one else knows what to do. So they just keep doing the 1031 exchanges. With this strategy, any, any capital gains taxes can also be deferred in perpetuity. 
So you don't ever have to do a 1031 exchange again. You can buy and sell your properties without worrying about capital gains, about putting the money back into some property that maybe you don't want to, but you're forced to because you've got to put it somewhere so you don't get killed on capital gains taxes. Now that's over with because mm -hmm. the, the trust owns the property, the trust sells the property, the, the, the proceeds come back into the trust. And with this special status that the trust has with, with this tax code, deferred in perpetuity. As long as that trust exists, taxes are never paid. This, this, you know, this is one of those things that, you know, I followed you. You did a great job explaining this. I followed you the whole, the whole way. So, but so the, some questions that arise. So if you have a property, like you said, your personal house, mm -hmm. if you have a property that has a mortgage on it, is there any loopholes or any issues with like a well, due on sales clause or anything like that? No. Well, it's, it's similar to a subject to strategy. So what you do is you sell the property. You did a warrant, you did a warranty deed, and there's also an, an assignment of note that's in the trust book. And then you don't record it, you keep it in the trust book. And when it comes time to sell it, then you record it or you give it to the title company, and then that's how you establish the chain of title. Okay. So the trust would pay for the mortgage, not you personally anymore. The trust is going to be a trust expense. Okay. And then you'd basically have bank accounts that would with that trust name and, and one bank account. One bank account. Okay. And then, and then you mentioned, uh, leasing back whatever's in the trust, you know, yeah. you're, you're establishing this lease. Assets, yes. Can the lease amount vary? Like, like, you know, the, that amount you, you yeah. meant, you meant. You can, we're allowed up to 70% by the IRS, but frankly, why would you not take the maximum? Right. You know, most of us, when we, you know, it, it might sound naive, frankly, but most of us, when we say at least, we think of it as a rental property. There's a fixed amount every month, you know, a, a lease or yeah. rent rent payment. But you're you're suggesting that it can be just simply a percentage. It's seventy percent of whatever your your pre tax net income is. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So once you got it in the trust. Is there a way for you to use those funds, like paying yourself, or how does that that piece work, well, or does that stay in the LLC, like you're operating on well, the thirty percent? And sometimes, sometimes it's a little bit hard for people who have been wired for the write-off syndrome, as I call it, because mm -hmm. we're always wondering if we can write stuff off. You change your mentality to: is it a trust expense or not? And I will tell you that the trust can pay for almost everything that you need in your life, not just for your business, right? So vehicles, for example, before you can only write off a certain amount of mileage because the vehicle is a trust asset. Now, that trust pays for everything, gas, maintenance, oil changes, new tires, whatever has to be done, the trust pays for that. So now you don't worry about write-offs anymore. You worry about whether the trust can – is it a trust expense or not. And pretty much what the trust cannot pay for is what I call the three Fs, food, fun, and fashion. That's it. Okay. Even then there's leeways. I mean, there's always gray areas. It depends on how aggressive you are or not. But my point is, is that, and, and it's not just me, everyone I've spoken with who owns a trust, they all, all say in unison, I hardly ever need cash anymore, you know, because the trust pays for pretty much almost everything. Hmm. So, you know, just to, just to go back on the lease thing there for a second too, is that when you, when you do a lease back to the LLC, Mm -hmm. There has to be some paper document, like yeah, this, an establish a written lease, right? There, yep. So it's all about having that documentation in place. Okay. Yes. So, you know, this sounds too good to be true. So what are the catches here? Like, why isn't everybody just doing this? 
People didn't know about it. I was doing real estate for 20 years, never heard about it. It's just now starting to filter down because it's been in the purview of, of the, with the, the ultra wealthy for decades. And it just, I mean, looks, Grant Cardone uses it, right? Warren Buffett, Jerry Jones, the the uh, owner of the Cowboys. I mean, if you can't, you reach a certain level, you're, you're getting a trust, but it's just almost like a secret, you know, a, a club, the VIP club that, you know, unless you're, you know, you're, you're, our noses are appeared to get, you know, pressed against the window looking in. We don't know what's going on in there, you know, in their smoke filled rooms where all the rich guys or rich women are there all laughing and, oh, well, we're so great because we know everything. Well, now it's drifted down to our level. And that's why I'm so passionate about talking about it because we should be able to use the same advantages that they have. We're, we're just as good as they are. And, and you can see that you can have $200 million and benefit from this and you can, ha- you can make $200,000 and still, you know, save a tremendous amount on your taxes. So why not? So then you also talked about asset protection. How did you, you said it, it's, it's almost impossible to pierce this. Yep. And you hear this all the time. In fact, I just had somebody on the show that, uh, that we talked about, about piercing that corporate veil. So can you kind of break down or summarize like what, what, what creates this better protection through a trust? The biggest thing is that the legislature, the government, the legislature, they can change, alter, eliminate anything that they create. Okay. So all your corporate entities are creatures of the legislature. Your S corps, your C corps, your LLCs, your land trusts. Okay, the trust is this trust is different. The spendthrift trust is different because it is based on contract law, not legislative law. Okay. It is a contract between two people or two entities, and this, there are you know it's, it's guaranteed in the spring in the Constitution about uh, that the the fact that their contracts are inviolable in in you know in our in our history in our country. And then I think it was in 1911, I believe it was, or I'm not, I'm not sure which one it was off the top of my head, but there was a Supreme Court ruling which stated that the government cannot regulate or tax a contract. Okay. So this strategy is based on contract law. It's stuff that everybody else is out there hawking. It's based on legislative law and, and whatever the government can create, creates, the government can take away. Right. Mm-hmm. They cannot regulate or sub or, or tax a contract that, like, like this. And that's what this this is a you can call it a contract law trust. And that is really why we have such we have the asset protection is almost impenetrable. Like I said, the only way they get penetrated is if you're breaking the law and you're, you're doing fraudulent activities. OK, so this, this is really you got me uh, really my brain spinning here a little bit, Don, in the in the fact uh, regarding this. And I keep coming back to the concept like what's the gotchas here? Uh, you know, you gave us the three the three F's, but there's got to be something else. What am I missing? There isn't really there, there are no gotchas. It really is that simple. And it's that effective. So you're going to have to pretend I'm, I'm just talk to me like I'm a three year old. I, I have a property, my house here, and I have I have uh, my my mortgage company. I'm I'm mortgaged on this property. The the mortgage company doesn't have to really be involved. Like what what do I what would I have to do to move that into a trust, and Just, not create a? I don't want a new mortgage. I don't. I I've locked in a great rate right now. You know, you don't have to. You don't have to. Like I said, all you would do is 
you would sell the property to the trust. You would do a warranty deed and a bill of sale. And the, the, the price would be whatever the price was when you bought it. All right. That, and then you also sign a paper called assignment of note. And that's in your trust documents. It's not recorded. The only difference is that now, as soon as that paperwork is completed, notarized, and now the trust is the owner of the property, that it's now an asset of the trust. The trust, as trustee, you have the responsibility to maintain and upkeep the assets, including including making the mortgage payment, make paying for the insurance, anything. If a water heater blows up, the trust pays for it. It's a trust expense. You want to you want to put on a new wing of your house. The trust pays for it. It's a, it's a trust expense. Okay, and so there's no due on sale clause danger because it's not being recorded. Sure. So it, let's say this even sounds like a good idea for just somebody who is employed nine to five and just to, just for the added protection. Help W2 employees. So, but no, I mean, no, no, the asset part. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. The tax reduction doesn't work with W2 employees. Right. So let's say though, let, let's say I am a W2 employee and I put my house in that, in this, can I fund the trust then in order to make the mortgage payment? Am I making sense? You would have that to work? using post-tax dollars, yes, but you could do that, sure. Well, is that what you would recommend? Let's say, let's say there isn't enough assets there in order to pay all of the all of the mortgages. Well, ideally, you'd have to do you, some sort of cash injection, wouldn't you? Yeah, ideally, what you want to do is you know synchronize a tax you know a tax uh, strategy like I just described with the asset protection. A lot of people that are W-2 employees that want to buy a trust, they'll go back to their employer and ask if they could be switched to 1099 status. And most of them do. A lot of them do because it saves, it saves the company money. At that point in time, then you're golden. So let's, sure. I, was talking to a, I was talking to a woman today that uh, she's a, a W-2 employee and uh, she also has a, um, a consulting company where obviously it's it's um, a side hustle, so it's not W two. But I was telling her how much money she, she could save with that, with with her side hustle. And then I said, "Why don't you go back to your your employer and see if they'll switch it to ninety nine? And she, I, we talked earlier this morning. And then I, before I jumped on the podcast, I got a text from her saying, "Yes, they said it's okay. We can do this." And so now what will happen is is that. Like, like we did we did in this scenario, right? You have an LLC. So instead of her being paid a W-2, the company will pay her LLC. And then LLC would then pass that income through to the trust, like we took like I described earlier. Right. Okay. So the trust becomes 90% limited partner of the LLC, and then 70% goes as as a lease. And he is a K1 distribution. Sure. Wow, Don, this you got you you blew my mind here tonight. I'm just I'm spinning. So again, I'm gonna direct everybody financial freedom, the number four, the letter U dot now dot site. There's a quick form there. Take advantage of that and you can learn more about this strategy. But Donna, is there anything else we should cover on this? Like otherwise we're gonna jump into some of the rapid fire. The last thing I would say, and I didn't cover this, but with this strategy. You never have to use multiple LLCs or land trusts. You take property in the name of one trust, one trust, one EIN number, one bank account. You're, you're free from that tyranny of having to, to spend money filing LLCs, creating them, you know, annual reports, 
you know, all the pain, you know, separate returns for your accounting because you don't need it. Just use this one trust, put all your properties into this trust. And that way you're going to save a ton of money and time for all that accounting BS that you have to go through now. Sure. That was going to, it does lead me to like a final question on this. If you don't mind me asking, like you and your team help with this type of strategy, I'd assume. Do you feel comfortable sharing? Like what does this setup typically cost? The beneficial trust is $15,000. It's a one-time investment that includes a full year of unlimited consulting uh, with not just with us, but with the accounting firm that we are allied with to make sure that everything is set up correctly and make sure that you're comfortable and that you're running your trust. And then also the accounting firm will do your um, taxes for you for free as part of the initial investment. Uh, okay. So that's, that's the, uh, you know, that's, that's the initial investment. You can't make payments. It's, you got to wire the money and, uh, but you get your trust like within a week and you can get started. Sure. And then, then beyond that fifth, beyond that first year, I think you mentioned that that covers your first year. What what is the, unlike the LLCs, there's no renewal or anything here associated with this. It's just no, 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 no annual filing fees. Okay. Okay. If you're thinking to yourself, is it worth it or not? If you go through the rest of your life, your professional life, and knowing that because this one investment you make, you're probably not going to pay significant amounts of taxes the rest of your life. Is it a one-time investment like this? I, th- I thought so. You know, everybody has to make a decision on their own, but I think it's right. a Yeah, well, I, I mean, compared, comparatively, when you're talking about real estate and we're dealing with transactions that are hundreds of thousands of dollars per transaction, I guess I didn't really even consider the, the co- a cost being an issue at that point, but, but it's, it's all mindset, right? It's, yes, exactly. it's, so, well, Don, uh, let's, let's jump into the uh, rapid fire questions. If you, sure. if you have time. So first of all, we're all have seen the late night infomercial infomercials, you know, get rich quick, no mm-hmm. money down, you know, pick, you can pick your poison. Mm-hmm. But what uh, one would you like to bust right now? What is one of those real estate investing myths you'd like to just say enough is enough? Stop put stop doing those infomercials on a yacht. I would just, I would be slogging through some cleanup of a house. You know. <laughs> yeah, I had that same experience when I was down in the basement of a house that had recently been was flooded. Mm. You know, past my ankles in water trying yeah. to deal with a, a sump pump that it wasn't working, replacing a sump pump. Yeah, I hear you. What book would you recommend or what are you What are you reading now? The book I would recommend, I would say the one that changed my life and it's old school, but it still holds up is Think and Grow Rich. Absolutely. Sure. Because the biggest, Hill. the biggest thing that I learned from that is never quit. I'm sure you've yep. read it. You remember the the, the yep. example of the guy that was like two feet away from a gold gold strike and he quit, you know, yep. and came in and just reaped all the riches. And that was a lesson, right? Because you never know, you know, when you're going to hit something. And I've I've been in this now for 20 years. I, I had my own business before that. The biggest lesson that I've learned in my entire life is that if you just do something every day towards your goals, you will succeed. It's just a matter of time. That's it. But it doesn't usually come quick. Whatever you want to say, the universe, higher power seems to want to test you first. Right. Well, what is the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Just what I said. (laughs) That one. (laughs) And one, just don't quit. Just don't. Yeah. 
So what is your biggest real estate investing mistake and what did you learn from it? In 1983, I went to a Robert Allen No Money Down seminar. I drove all the way overnight from St. Louis, Missouri to, to, to Cincinnati. And I went there just because I wanted to be a real estate investor. Even when I was 19, 18, I wanted to do that. And so I learned a lot, but I was a little scared. I didn't really do something, but I still had the stuff. I still read it. I still thought about it. Fast forward a few years later, I was in, I was in uh, uh, university and I was dabbling in real estate. And this was in the mid 80s. And this was when the tax, the, the tax laws changed. And so a lot of professionals like attorneys and doctors, they had real estate mostly just for the depreciation. I was offered a fourplex for free, a free and clear fourplex because mm-hmm. the doctor didn't want to have any capital gains. He didn't want to pay taxes, so he was going to give it to me. I walked to the closing table and freaked out and left. Really? <laughs> yes. And I, I wasted 12 more years before I got back into real estate. And I thought to myself, what my, my, so don't be afraid. There's always just, if the deal is good, you can find money. If you, if the deal is good, but you don't know how to put it together, you can find someone to help you. Okay. You can always find resources. Getting a deal is always the hardest part. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? And I'm guessing it's don't run from that closing table. I think it was the idea that I had to be educated to be successful. And I have a degree in Russian language and economics from a Russian university because I spent a lot of time in Russia uh, back in the 90s, late 80s and early and throughout the 90s. And I got an MBA in finance. And I can tell you that none of it did me a lick of good. None of it. Yeah. You know, that's it comes to something that I've been I kind of get on my on my stool and and uh, rant a little bit right now. I think one of the things that we've neglected to when it comes to high schoolers before they go to, into college is simply sit down and educate them on the concept of return on investment. Yes, and they should be running that calculation every mm-hmm. time they're considering a college degree because that's that's the only way we're going to really get people educated enough to understand that underwater underwater basket weaving mm-hmm. isn't a viable career choice. Yes. So anyway, now I'll, I'll get off my, uh, I'm preaching to the choir. So with that, is there a question or concept you wish we would have covered here tonight, Don? You know, my good, how my good looks uh, helped me in my real estate career, but I guess we could talk that, about that some other time, but uh, other than that, no. Well, Don, this was a great conversation. Uh, again, it is financial freedom, the number four, the letter U, dots now dot site. And I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes, but Don, I hope you'll come back again sometime. Maybe we can go a little deeper on the whole short sale side. Yeah. I'd love to talk about short sales. They're coming back by the way. Yeah. I have a feeling they are. And uh, thanks to the economy, right? Yeah. So, well, we'll talk to you again next time. Thank you. If you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing, If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.